Last time we met, we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 20 and 21. And we traced the life of David from the time that he left his own house where his wife, Saul's daughter, had enabled him to escape. Where he then went to where Samuel was, which was a good thing. It's always good to go to the man of God for, for counsel and instruction. But then we find David doing things that was uncharacteristic for David. That is, based upon what we'd learned about David up to that particular time. We'd seen David as he fought the bear and the lion. He depended upon the Lord. When he fought against the Philistines, he put all his dependence upon the Lord. When he fought against Goliath, he trusted entirely in the Lord. But we notice how David departed from that. Now, David is just like you and just like I. If we look back in our own lives and be quite honest about it, hopefully we can say there are times we have truly trusted in the Lord. But I'm sure we could also say there's times that we departed from that. And so David just proves himself to be human here. And so he leaves Samuel and goes to Jonathan, his good friend. But then we found where David came up with his own plan. It wasn't God's plan, it was his plan. And that plan included telling a lie. And then we find where he left there. And he went to the priest, Amalek. And there he was able to get something to eat. He was weak. He needed something, but he used another lie to obtain that. And then he got Goliath's sword. And in all this, we see where David's beginning to depend upon himself and not the Lord. He's looking to his own strength. He's looking to his own uh, intellect, you might say. Because from there, he goes to Gath and joins himself up temporarily with the Philistines, who's been his enemy on numerous occasions. Quite incredible when you think about it. And the Philistines, the soldiers, recognized him right off the bat and said, isn't this not he in which they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? And then David, out of fear for his life, pretends to be a madman. And he began to drool and began to scribble on the door. David was quite gifted and talented at these things. And when the king saw that, the Philistines, he didn't want to have anything to do with David. Now, chapter 22 opens up saying that David departed and escaped to the cave Adullam. Now, you might say, well, David was quite clever, wasn't he, in all of this? No, I, I think the Lord just simply blessed him in spite of himself. Uh, David easily could have been taken by the Philistine soldiers and placed in prison. His life could actually have been taken. He was in the hands of the enemy, except the Lord's hands was also with him and delivered him out of there. So he departed, but it says not only did he depart, but he escaped to this particular cave. It was an escape that David made from the Philistines. Now let's notice the opening verses of this. David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him and he became a captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went thence to Mizpah of Moab and he said unto the king of Moab, Let my father and my mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you till I know what God will do for me. 
That's a very interesting phrase. And he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the while that David was in the hole, that is, in the cave. And the prophet Gad said unto David, Abide not in the hole, depart, and then get thee to the land of Judah. Then David departed and came into the forest of Hereth. That's all I want to deal with tonight. The rest of this chapter records what I made mention of last time, that when David went to the priest and got some bread and that sword of Goliath, there was a man there by the name of Doeg. Doeg was a very close associate, of course, to Saul, and he observed all of this. And the rest of this chapter tells about how he told Saul everything he saw concerning David and the priest. Now he said several things that were true and several things that were not true, just like you would think a wicked man would do. And we find that Saul then called the priest and all of his household together and inquired why he helped David. He gave this man an unfair trial. This man had really done nothing wrong. He was on solid footing and everything. He said and everything that he did. But Saul was so beside himself that Saul had the priest and his entire family, all together the other priest, about 85 of them, had them all slain. And when he told his servants to slay them, they would not do it. Just like, if you remember earlier, he, he charged them to slay Jonathan, and they wouldn't do it. So he got Doeg, that wicked and evil man, to do the task, and he did it. That's the balance of chapter 22. But we'll confine our remarks tonight to these first several verses of this chapter. Now David escaped to this particular cave. Now you will find Psalms 57 and Psalms 142 both were written concerning this experience. Last time we spoke about Psalms 34 and 56 as they referred to the experience that David had gone through there with the priest, etc. But this experience in the cave, we're going to find where David cried to the Lord and David prayed to the Lord. Some of the things David said to the Lord that we wouldn't know if we didn't read those Psalms. And we'll say more about that if it be the Lord's will a little bit later. But we find, of course, David being a type of the Lord Jesus Christ in so many ways. We find here David is by himself in the beginning. By himself. There's no one with him. Then we find where his father, his mother, and his brother find out where he's at. And they come down to meet with him there. And then there's 400 men that's going to leave Saul's army. And they're going to come to where David's at in this cave here. And this is an interesting band of people. We find David now is no longer alone. He does have company. And this is going to be the beginning of David's army. When he first goes to the cave, he has no army. He's by himself. He's a fugitive. He's an outlaw. He cannot go home. He cannot go back to the palace. He's on the move. He's on the run. He's in this particular cave. Now, if you read in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verses 37 and 38, we find recorded many of the Lord's people in the Old Testament day that suffered tremendously because they tried to walk with God. It says some were stoned. Some were sawn asunder. And some were slain by the sword. And then there were those, he says, whom the world was not worthy of. 
it says, and they wandered around in sheepskins and goatskins, and they wandered around in the wilderness, in the mountains, in dens, and in caves. Now that last verse, there's four places they wandered around in. The desert, the mountains, dens, and caves. You're going to find in David's life, in his experience, he fled from Saul and later on from Absalom. He spent time uh, in the desert. He spent time in the mountains. He spent time in dens. And he spent times in caves. That verse would apply to David in every part of it. Here he finds himself in a cave. Now to those who saw this cave, it was a cave. You read it and you don't read Psalms 142 and Psalms 57. It may just seem like a cave to you. But when you read the details of these Psalms, you're going to find where David did a lot of praying when he was in that cave. That cave became a sanctuary for David. That cave became a place of refuge for David. David spent time in that cave communicating with God and praying to God. And we see a change now in David's life. Remember I told you how that expression was an interesting expression a while ago when he says that we will see what God will do for me. It seems like now David has learned some things from his experiences in chapter 20 and 21, recognizing the error of his way, recognizing he cannot fight the battle on his own apart from God. So now he has turned back to depending upon the Lord. And now we begin to see the David that we we're so much used to seeing back prior to chapter 20, you see. Now, this is an unusual place to call a sanctuary, isn't it? But you know, when Daniel was in the den of lions, that den of lions was a sanctuary for David. And when the Hebrew children were in the fiery furnace, that fiery furnace was a sanctuary for those three Hebrew children. Even Jonah being in the belly of the whale, that was, a, that was a sanctuary for him, wasn't it? When he was in the depths of the sea and spent three days and three nights there. We find Jeremiah being in dungeons and Jeremiah being in prisons. And they all turn into be sanctuaries because in all these places where they found themselves, we find them crying out to God, crying out to the Lord. And what did the Lord do in Daniel's case? He sent the angels, didn't he? An angel came down and shut the mouth of the lions. In the case of the Hebrew children, the Lord Jesus Christ is seen walking in the midst of that fiery furnace being uh, their shelter, being their, their, you know, protecting them from that intense flame, that intense heat of that fiery furnace. Even Jonah in the belly of the whale, three days and three nights in the belly of this great fish that God prepared in the depths of the sea, and yet when he turned his face toward Jerusalem and prayed, the Lord spake to that fish and he spit him up on dry ground. <laughs> so you may have some unusual places that are sanctuaries for you. Look at Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. They're in prison, aren't they? But at the midnight hour, what are they doing? They're praying and singing praises to God at midnight. That prison turned into a sanctuary for Paul and Silas. And as you read in the 142nd Psalm, you're going to find where David mentions being in prison. He considered this, this cavern, this, this cave where he was at, that he took refuge in to be a prison at particular time. It was a hold. But it was there that he received his brethren and his father. And then he goes to Moab and he asked for protection. This is kind of interesting because the Moabites, generally speaking, was, was the enemies of the Israelites as well. But apparently David was on good ground with them in this particular time. And God intervening on his behalf answered, you might say, David's prayer. And 
David made this request, the king of Moab granted his request and took care of his father and his mother until such time as David knew what God was going to do for him. Now, David, again, was alone, a fugitive. When I think of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think of a man that was alone many times. I find where the Lord went into the mountain, prayed all night long, and he was alone. I find in John 1.10 where he was in the world, the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. I find where he came to his own, his own received him not. That just simply means that, you know, he, he was alone, so to speak. He was in this world, but he was not of this world. Interesting, when you read the last verse of John chapter 7, you're going to find where there were some people there, and it says, and every man went to his own house. In the very next verse, which is John 8.1, very next verse says, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Wonder why Jesus didn't go to a house or a home. He, he didn't have one. He didn't have one. The Mount of Olives was his house. Everybody else had a house. Everybody else went to their house. But the Lord Jesus Christ went into the Mount of Olives. He didn't have one. We find in Matthew where the Lord said, For the fox have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The fox have, have houses, and, and the birds of the air have their nests. They have houses, right? Places where they, they live. But the Son of God had no place to lay his precious brow, to lay his precious head. He created this world. He spoke it into existence, and he's maintained it for 6,000 years by his omnipotent power, and yet during his earthly life here, 33 years, once he left the household of Mary and Joseph, he was on his own by himself. We find that David behaved himself wisely in all things. Jesus Christ is wisdom personified. We find that the name of David was well set by. When people heard David's name, they associated that name with goodness. David had been good. In his life, he had been a blessing to the nation of Israel. He served faithfully under Saul. He, he was a faithful soldier. He put his life on the line against Goliath. He had been a blessing to this nation, you see. His name was well set by. When the people heard the name of David, it, it brought good, positive thoughts to their mind. Just like when I hear the name Jesus. The name Jesus is well set by, isn't it? You know, the word Jesus means salvation. And when I think of Jesus, I think the first thing I think of is salvation. I think about deliverance. I think about my deliverance from this world to a place called heaven. I think about my salvation, that Jesus Christ has saved me from my sins, paid my sin debt. That's what the name Jesus means to me. And the name Jesus means mercy. The name Jesus means compassion. The name Jesus means kindness. Uh, the name Jesus means caring. You know, that's why Peter says, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. We find where the Bible says several times that the Lord was with David. I know at least three times, specifically says, and the Lord was with him. And I find in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38 where the apostle Peter is speaking to Cornelius, and he says, for the Holy Ghost, uh, Jesus received power of, of the Holy Ghost, and he went about doing good, and delivering those that are suppressed of the devil, for God was with him. 
Just like the Lord was with David, God the Father was with his son as well. David did great exploits, did he not? We mentioned some here already. He slew, a, again, a bear and a lion with his own hands and kept that bear and lion from robbing one lamb out of the flock. Now you might, I don't know how big the flock was, by the way, that David was watching over, but it was his father's flock, and the father put him in charge of the flock. I hope you can see that the father in heaven put his son in charge over the elect family of God, the flock. And the Lord Jesus Christ is not going to allow a bear or a lion, Satan, the devil himself, to take one out of the hand of the Father and his own hand. Jesus teaches us in John chapter 10. I know my sheep, they hear my voice, they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no man can pluck them out of my hand. And my Father which gave them me is greater than all. No man can pluck them out of my Father's hand for I am the Father or one. David won every battle he ever fought against the Philistines. David went out when he says there are not a cause and fought against Goliath when Saul and the, his captain and everybody else in the army were too afraid to take up the challenge, but not David. David, as a teenage lad, went out there and fought the giant. He did great exploits. And so did the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ went about healing, did he not? We find where Christ gave sight to the blind, Christ gave hearing to the deaf, Christ mended the brokenhearted, Christ uh, cleansed the lepers from their, their leprosy. He enabled the lame to walk, he raised the dead back to life again. They both did great exploits here. And yet we find David at this time, after doing everything I've already mentioned and other things besides, we find him in a cave by himself an outlaw and a fugitive. After everything the Lord Jesus Christ did, when it came down to the end of 33 and a half years, we find him a prisoner being a victim of a mock trial in which all the cards were stacked against him, so to speak. Never has anybody suffered such injustice as the Lord Jesus Christ did. David was the king-elect. Now, God made it very clear, going back to 1 Samuel chapter 13, 15, and 16, that there was a man who was after his own heart, a neighbor of Saul's. He don't call him a name until we get to chapter 16, and we find he's set aside as the youngest and eighth son of the man named Jesse. David was God's king-elect, but it's going to be at least 10 years down the road. Uh, right where we're at tonight is the beginning of a 10-year exile of David at least 10 years down the road before he ever really sits on the throne, but he is the king-elect. When the wise men came, Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, when they came following that star, you know what they said? They said, where is he that's born king of the Jews? We've come to seek him. We've come to look for him, to find him. Jesus Christ was the king of the Jews before he was ever born. Because he's always been king. He was king when he was born. He was king while he grew up. He was king come riding in the city of Jerusalem upon that ass of colt and the fold of that. He was king then. But right now he's on the right hand of God. He's on the right hand of the throne of God. He's in heaven ruling as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, right? The Lord Jesus Christ was the king elect too. So we see a lot of familiarities here, a lot of similarities. 
between these two men. But let's take a look at these 400 men. The Bible describes these 400 men that came to him. And why did they come to him? It's nothing but a miraculous display of the providence of God. You can read in the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 12 a little bit more about these men. These men were valiant men. These men could hurl stones and shoot arrows with their left hand or their right hand. Didn't matter. <laughs> they were good either way. These 400 men are said to be men that were in debt, that were distressed and discontented. You put those three words together here, and you, you're going to find a description, I believe, of a child of grace, a child of God, when he reaches a point in his experience that he sees himself to be unworthy, unfit, undone, <laughs> and just dissatisfied with the world in which he's living in right here. How satisfied are you with the world in which we're living with right here? I hope you're not satisfied at all. Do you feel to be somebody that's in debt? Do you feel, you know, the, the hymn writer said, Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. He did. He paid it all on Calvary, my friends. But I'm telling you, I believe the Lord's children are in a blessed state when they reach a point where they see that they are debtors to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you read Romans 3.23, the Bible says, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. In Romans 6 and 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. When you begin to see the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ during this earthly ministry, you should be able to see a similarity, a, big, a great similarity between those kind of people and the 400 men that I'm talking about right now. These 400 men were in debt. These 400 men were distressed. These 400 men were discontented. They were not happy from where they were at. They knew that King Saul was a terrible leader. They knew King Saul was ruining their country. And these 400 men leave there and they find King David. They're drawn to King David. Who did the Lord draw to him during his ministry? We read in the book of Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, where the Lord Jesus Christ said, Come unto me, all you that labor in a heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Does that describe everybody you know? Does that describe the world in which we live here? It does not, but I believe it does describe a few of the Lord's people. I mean, it describes you tonight. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, not life, but rest. If you're laboring and heavy laden, <laughs> you've got eternal life, and you wouldn't feel that way. You wouldn't feel to be in that kind of condition, you see. In the 12th chapter of Mark, you're going to find where the Bible says, and the common people heard him gladly. The Pharisees didn't hear him gladly. The Sadducees didn't hear him gladly. The chief priests, scribes, and elders didn't hear him gladly. But there were people that heard him gladly. The Bible calls the common folks. The people that followed the Lord Jesus Christ were people who saw a great need in him. And these 400 men that leave Saul, they find a great need in, Jesus, in David. They've seen qualities and characteristics in the leadership of David that has drawn them to King David, you see. It's drawn, you know, people, people recognize when they got good leadership and when they don't. 
And good leadership draws the right kind of people. And David might be a fugitive. David might be uh, in that cave by himself. But he's not going to be there too long because his own family is going to come to him. And then these 400 men that are in debt, discontented, in great distress, they leave King Saul and they come to where David's at. So let's see who came and who didn't. Who came and who didn't? Because King Saul's got a big army. All the rest of the dignitaries and the big wigs and everything else was not going to leave that palace to go follow David. And you're going to find when the Lord Jesus Christ come riding in upon that ass, the colt, the fold and ass in Jerusalem as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, who met him? Who met him? Did, did Herod meet him? He did not. Did Pilate meet him? He did not. Did the chief priests, scribes, and elders meet him? They did not. Little children met him. Little children met him. And they came and they went before him and just put the flowers and the palm branches and everything else. And they cried out, low, low, Hosanna, you know, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't come riding in upon some great white horse. He come riding in upon an ass, a cold, a fold of an ass, a poor man's travel. These 400 men sought out King David and came to where he was at. These 400 men, if you continue to read, made, made up, they were a ragtag bunch of people, so to speak. Misfits, outcasts. But they came, I think them and King David had a lot in common. I believe they no doubt spoke to him in, in, in a consoling way and, and tried to give him comfort. He gave them comfort, no doubt. Just like what we're supposed to do. In the book of 2 uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 1, we're told that those who have been comforted should try to comfort others with the same comfort whereby you have been comforted. If you've been comforted in the past by God, and I'm confident that you have been, when you go see somebody, you say, I don't know what to say. J -j just comfort them with the comfort you received. <laughs> That's what you got to do. The things that comforted you will comfort me, and the things that comforted me will comfort you. We may have different things that bothers us. We may have different things we're going through. Our experiences may not be identical, brother, but I'm telling you, uh, the Lord, when he left this world, said, you know, the comforter shall come. And the one that came, he came to bring comfort. He's the God of all comfort. You'll read where David had some mighty men. And over a period of time, about four years, more and more defected from Saul and came to David to where David's army continued to grow and Saul's army continued to diminish. The right kind of men were coming to make up David's army. We may say something this down the road. I'm sure we probably will. But there was a time when David was so well thought of by, by his soldiers and those that was around him. One day he just kind of wished out loud or just spoke words out loud. Oh, that I might have a drink of the water from the well in Bethlehem. See, Bethlehem was David's hometown. And right here in this cave, he's about 15 miles from Bethlehem and about 10 miles from Gath of the Philistines. He left there and he came 10 miles this way. He's about 15 miles from Bethlehem. He's in friendly, you know, he's in friendly territory, so to speak. They said, oh, that might have a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem. He must have drank water out of that well many different times. Must have been kind of special. 
and his men heard him. And they didn't say anything to him. They just left there and they went to the wells in Bethlehem and had to go through enemy lines to get there. And they risked their life. And they brought him back a cup of water from the well of Bethlehem. That's, to me, that's one of the most, uh, uh, I mean, a, a wonderful scene in the Bible to show how devoted they were to him, how, how they esteemed him so highly, how they loved this man. And they were willing now to put their allegiance to him and become his ally and part of his, uh, uh, you know, army. And these men were valiant men. And you'll read, it's kind of interesting reading over here later on, especially in the book of 1 Chronicles, where he speaks about the mighty men of David and some of the great exploits some of these mighty men did. It's quite extraordinary. So we come and to this uh, 57th Psalm. Let's take Psalm 57. It starts off like this. It says, Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me. <laughs> David repeats it. Be merciful unto me, O God. David wants mercy here. Kind of reminds me of the publican there in Luke chapter 18 when he spoke himself upon the breast and said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. They says, Lord, have mercy upon me. Oh, God, have mercy upon me. Have you ever prayed like that? When you just repeat yourself, you just feel such a great need of God's grace and his mercy and his kindness and his long-suffering and his compassion, you just repeat yourself. He says, my soul trusteth in thee. He says, I take refuge under the shadow of thy wings. I take refuge under the shadow of thy wings. Now, you got mercy and you got wings. When you look at the tabernacle that Moses erected, built according to the pattern that God gave him, you're going to find where there was the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were three things. There was Aaron's rod that buddy. There was uh, Moses, two tables of stone, you know, Moses' law that was in there. And you're going to find on top of that Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. What was on top of the mercy seat? There was a golden pot of manna in there too. That was the third thing. Well, the mercy seat covers the Ark of the Covenant. And on each end of the Ark of the Covenant are two cherubims. And it says they stretch forth their wings toward one another. And we find that the mercy seat was not the seat for the priest. The mercy seat was God's seat. That's where God sat. When God came down from heaven and met with them, he came down and he sat right there on the mercy seat. David says, My soul trusteth in thee and taketh refuge under the shadow of thy wings. Psalm 17, 8, David wrote, Keep me as the apple of thine eye and hide me under the shadow of thy wings. Wings are used in the Bible in various ways to show the kindness of God, the deliverance of God, the care of God, the protection of God. Look in the last part of Matthew chapter 23, the Lord comes to Jerusalem. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered thee as a hen gather her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Anybody here ever raised chickens? Ever been around chickens? I was raised on the farm. We had chickens as well as a lot of other things. Hogs and cows and everything, whatever. We had chickens. And the old mother hen, 
She just spread her wings, and those little chickens just come right under them because they felt safe there. They felt like as long as they was under the wings of that mother, that mother hen, they was going to be okay. David said in Psalms 55 and verse 6, If I had the wings of a dove, I'd fly away and I'd be at rest. Look at the last verse of Isaiah chapter 40. They that wait upon the Lord shall mount up with, mount up with wings as eagles. And they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk, and they shall not faint. The Bible uses the wings of an eagle, the wings of a dove, the wings of a, of a mother hen to give us pictures of what God's wings are like, the wings of those cherubims, you see. In the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Unto those that fear the Lord shall the Son of Rights, that's spelled with a capital S, but it's S-U-N, it's not S-O-N, but it has reference to the S-O-N. When the Son of Righteousness shall rise... To those that fear his name shall the Son of Rice arise with healing in his wings. You ever been out, uh, you know, on a cold morning and the sun comes up and you kind of go outside and you can feel the warm rays of the sun and just how it just makes you feel better? <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you, there, there's healing, brothering, in the wings of God. The Son of Rice arise with healing in his wings. The wings of our Lord provide a refuge for the Lord's people, a protection for the Lord's people, showing care and compassion that God has for his people. And this is what David is saying there when he's in this cave, as you read it in Psalms 57. I like verse 7 too. He says, My heart is fixed, O Lord. My heart is fixed. That word fixed means prepared. My heart is fixed, it's prepared, it's set. Where's your heart? Where's my heart? Is it prepared? Is it fixed? Is it set? <laughs> and then we come to the 142nd Psalm. In Psalms 142, it starts off, it says, I cried unto the Lord. That word cry in general means pray. But it pray with urgency. It means to pray uh, with passion. With passion and urgency. I cried unto the Lord. He says, in him will I take my refuge until all my calamities are passing gone. Then he comes down, I think it's verse 5. And he says, thou art my refuge. He says, uh, and thou art my portion in the land of the living. Where's your refuge tonight? Where's my refuge? Psalms 46.1. God is our refuge and a very present help in the time of trouble. In the time of trouble, he's a very present help. God is our refuge. That, that, that cave that David was in, it may look like just a, an ordinary, uh, you know, a thing out here or whatever to the natural life. But I'm telling you, while David was in it and he was communicating with God, he was communing with God, uh, it was, became a, a divine sanctuary for David. Just like that belly of the whale became for Jonah. <laughs> when Jonah turned his face uh, toward Jerusalem. Now, how you tell me how a man in the belly of a whale in the depths of the sea knows what direction that is? Somehow or another he did. He turned his face that way. He prayed. Just like Daniel opened up the windows of my friends three times a day toward Jerusalem and he prayed. And so we got some windows. The Bible talks about heaven having windows. 
And we got a place where we can pray to and we can cry and we can turn our attention to. And God is our refuge. I love Hebrews 6, 18. When he says that, but two immutable things, which is impossible for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to that hope which is set before us, which is like an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Two immutable things. The word immutable means unchangeable. God's word, God's counsel is unchangeable. God cannot lie. That's about the only thing I can tell you tonight that's unchangeable. Did you know that? That's the only thing I can really take any stock in, really tell you emphatically that cannot change and will not change, and that's God Almighty. His word cannot change because he cannot lie, and his counsel cannot change his good pleasure and his will. He says, therefore, we might have a strong consolation. What kind of consolation do we have tonight? It's a strong consolation. Who have fled. David fled. David fled from Gath to this particular cave, and he found it to be, to be used as a refuge. But while he was in that cave, it served as a refuge from Saul. It turned into be a refuge, my friends, with God. What an experience. I don't know how long he was in there. He was in there long enough to write Psalms 142. He was in there long enough to write Psalms 57. He wrote both of those while he was in that cave. And we find as he comes out of that cave, takes care of his family, takes heed to the word of the prophet Gad, that he leaves that place, goes to another place. He says, until I know what God shall do for me. I believe we got, a, we got the old David back, don't we? <laughs> we got the old David back. We got the David back that slew the bear and the lion. We got David back that slew the Philistine. We got David back that fought against Goliath. We got the old David back that depended upon the Lord 100%, recognized God was his strength, God was his refuge. We got the old David back. So until next time, I hope you can reflect and meditate on the things that we've spoken to here tonight. Remember Romans 15 and 4 says, The things written of wartime was written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. We should be able to learn something tonight from the lesson that we find here in this cave. Go home, read Psalm 57, and read Psalm 142. David wrote both of them while he was in the cave and having this experience.